Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 12th, 2007. This week, episode 54 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co host, Cliff Zlotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Cliff, and the CJ cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Now, that's what I call a dead putter. Good afternoon, Joe. <laughs> Good afternoon, Zach. All right, you can check us out on our website at www.iaqradio.com. Don't forget, we also offer those IAQ console credits by emailing me at joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. We'll send you out a quiz on the show, and uh, you can get some console credits if you're looking for renewals. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz. We've got Lou Harriman from Mason Grant Consulting, a little current event segment. And before we get into that, let's quickly thank our sponsors. We'll start with Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com dry ease products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings dry ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com and john don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com that's j-o-n-d-o-n.com Okay, to contact the show, you've got to go to TalkShoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com. Get on their website, follow the directions to get your PIN number. Our show ID is 1547, or you can email questions to us at the IAQ radio site or at our emails. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. You can also reach uh, Cliff. I've got your email in here. There it is. Cliff Zlotnick at unsmoke.com. That's Z-L-O-T-N-I-K at unsmoke.com. All right, over to you, Cliff, for the Microband Trivia Quiz. Congratulations go out to Jim Miller from Colorado, who successfully answered last week's microband trivia question. 
which came from the occupational hygiene and medical fields. The question it or was, what is conjunctivitis and what are the common causes of it? The answer is conjunctivitis is pink eye. It's an inflammation of the membrane that lies that lines the eyelid and part of the eyeball. It can be caused by viral, bacterial infection, chemical splashes, or allergies. The microbian trivia question, in deference to today's speaker, comes from the field of thermal energy. Zach, the envelope, please. One pound samples of each of the following materials are heated to a uniform temperature. If the temperature of the environment is reduced, which sample will cool most slowly? Select from steel, wood, water, and concrete. The question and potential answers are listed on our website. Okay, so you go to IAQ training dot, or I'm sorry, to IAQradio.com and the microband trivia quiz. Yep, is just click there. on the uh, the trivia button at the top. All right, CJ, great job. All right, let's get on with our first guest today. Uh, we've got some intro music for Lou. Okay. Thanks, EJ. You come up with something every week. <laughs> Lou Harriman of Mason Grant Consulting in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a man who wears many hats. After college, Lou spent five years as an officer in the United States Air Force, basically cleaning toilets and pushing paper rather than flying airplanes. He was assigned to the Air Force Engineering and Services as a billeting officer, a hotel keeper, both at base level in California and then for the 30 bases of the Strategic Air Command in Omaha. That's where he learned some of the realities of building budgets, maintenance, and construction, and odd occupant behavior. After that, he worked for 10 years in application engineering and new product development for what is now the Munters Company in Amesbury, Mass. That's where he learned about precision industrial HVAC, especially dehumidification and drying technology. In 1986, he started his own consulting firm, Mason Grant Consulting, in Portsmouth. Over the last 20 years, he's done projects for Munters Moisture Control Services as they developed a disaster or the disaster drying market. He wrote and illustrated the second edition of Munters Dehumidification Handbook, the square book with the blue cover. He also wrote the Desiccant Dehumidification Application Guide for Commercial Buildings published by the Gas Research Institute. He's been both a volunteer and a research consultant for ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Didn't want to get the acronym police to get me there. In addition to 20 years of membership on ASHRAE technical committees, he was the author and project manager for ASHRAE's Humidity Control Design Guide, a 500-page book focused on commercial and institutional buildings. In the last five years, Lou's been involved with the research into the use of radar to locate moisture and mold in buildings and has researched and written the Builder's Guide to Reducing Mold Risk for the California Energy Commission. He's also been a consultant for the U.S. General Service Administration Public Building Service, and he's performed peer review of HVAC designs for major new federal buildings, developed the GSA's new protocol 
for inspecting the exterior of tall buildings using thermal cameras. So today, we'll be asking Lou some of his thoughts about the issues of interest to IAQ listeners. We're going to try and break it into four categories today, humidity control and design that will be uh, combined with some ASHRAE information. We'll also talk a little bit about water damage restoration. Then we'll talk some on moisture measurement, some tools of the trade, maybe a little on water activity. And last, of course, any new trends or miscellaneous information. Lou, do we have you on the line? You sure do. I am here, and thank you very much for the introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us, Lou. It's great to have you here. I had a question right off the top of my head when I, uh, you know, started reading up on some of your information. What is the origin of the name Mason Grant Consulting? <laughs> well, that, uh, that that goes back about 20 years to, to when I started the company. Uh, I wasn't really sure what sort of a company I was going to build, and uh, and in thinking about it, uh, it seemed like a name other than Lou Harriman Associates would be a little bit more interesting. And it, it turns out that because we live here in New Hampshire, we're very much steeped in history, and what is now most of the state of New Hampshire was originally the grant, Captain John Mason, from King James I uh, of England. So New Hampshire was originally the Mason grant, and that's the origin of the name. It just seemed like a more interesting name than, uh, than Lou and France. I agree with you, Lou. <laughs> Cliff, why don't you go ahead? Oh, sure. I guess, Lou, sooner or later, every HVAC engineer, architect, building owner, contractor, or maintenance engineer comes up against the challenge of controlling humidity in building. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book and some of the tools contained within it to meet that challenge. Sure. Uh, this is, um, you're probably referring to the uh, to ASHRAE's uh, Humidity Control Design Guide for Commercial and, and Institutional Buildings. Yes, we um, are. I was uh, privileged to be the uh, the project leader for that for that project, which began about, uh, well, actually almost nine years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book came out of a concern, really, with the mold and moisture problems in buildings that we'd been seeing through the 90s. And the engineers that were involved in, in ASHRAE policy felt that it might be useful to have a, uh, a book that really addressed that topic individually, uh, separate from cooling and separate from heating. Because uh, the fact of the matter is, in 100 years of the society's uh, existence, we hadn't actually gotten around to doing that. So uh, uh, a group of us got together and uh, wrote and uh, illustrated a, a, that new book to help people think maybe a little bit more productively than they had been in the past about about humidity control in buildings and how one would go about doing it in a in a simple way. Um, a lot of problems with uh, with humidity in buildings. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Well, let me yeah. let me ask a quick one: Is is humidity control only a problem in hot, humid climates? I think I know the answer, but I'd rather hear it from you. Well, it, it, it certainly is a problem all over. Um, in the early 1990s, uh, I was part of a research project performed for the American Hotel and Motel Association that looked into the problems of, of mold in hotels. They were maybe one of the canaries in the mind of the mold problems in buildings. And what was quite obvious from the responses of their members, 9,000 of them, is that uh, mold is a problem all over the uh, all over North America, even up into uh, into Canada, and of course down the Caribbean. So yes, it's certainly a uh, a more common problem and maybe a more severe problem in hot and humid climates. But the issue really is um, water condensing inside buildings, and that happens in cold climates 
just like it happens. Well, not just like, <laughs> similar similar ways to what happens in uh, in, uh, in humid climates. What are the most common causes of this condensation? Uh, probably, if if you boil it down to its essence, um, there are really two really two issues. One is, uh, did you dry the ventilation air? And the second is, did you let water into the building through cracks and holes? Those two issues really are the, the fundamental problems that happen, uh, at least in general HVAC practice. Uh, problem is, ventilation air carries an awful lot of moisture, and that's true really no matter where you are except in, in high altitude or desert climates. Uh, all other parts of the world, the, the moisture load is higher than the cooling load from, from ventilation air. And that's not intuitive to people that that's the case. Um, so if the engineer or the HVAC designer doesn't see that load, if they don't understand that that's the key, they're not likely to design a system that's going to nail that load and get it out of there. So you end up with a lot of humidity indoors, and when there's a lot of humidity indoors, it's likely to find a cold surface and condense, or at least be absorbed into that material, and then there's going to be a problem with mold over time. Maybe. <laughs> as we know, there are an awful lot of buildings that have absolutely no problems with, uh, with mold, uh, uh, so as you notice, uh, and uh, so it's, it's a little bit random, but uh, fundamentally it's, it's all about uh, a dew point inside the building that's too high, and therefore it condenses on uh, surfaces. Well, can you give us uh, one example of a project where, you know, either one of these mistakes, either not dehumidifying the ventilation or having... Uh, infiltration through, I guess, the building envelope, where one of these mistakes occurred and what you had to do to fix the problem? Sure. Um, it's a little bit easier to talk about problems from long ago because uh, then they're not quite so uh, so sensitive. Okay. <laughs> uh, if, if, if we look back again to the, uh, to the early or the middle uh, uh, 90s, uh, hotels in Florida, uh, I'll just say a major resort hotel, um, had some very nasty problems. And uh, uh, this was, uh, I guess it was about a 20-story building. And there were all kinds of difficulties with mold. And they had done a lot in terms of cleaning the mold, but they hadn't really, in the in the middle 90s, quite tumbled to the problem of the moisture content of the materials uh, in the building. And Fundamentally, uh, it was exactly that problem is that they were bringing untreated ventilation air into the main cooling system, and then the main cooling system was uh, providing what amounted to uh, fairly humid air to all the, all the corridors. And then they positively pressurized the building, which is what a lot of HVAC designers wanted to do, but what they were doing is uh, filling that uh, uh, building with, uh, with very humid air, with uh, air that had a very high dew point. So to retrofit that... Um, uh, the idea was to take a, uh, a very large dehumidification system and dry that uh, that air down to a low dew point. And the thought was that by doing that, and we're talking 60,000 60, cubic feet per minute, not talking small amounts of air, very large amounts of air, uh, that, the, that the building would be dried out and then therefore uh, do away with the mold problem. And that worked, sort of. Okay. But <laughs> the rest of the story, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but it gets to that other uh, issue that I mentioned. That it, uh, it was a building that had eaves, which is, uh, as many people know, uh, external insulation and finish system, also known as synthetic stucco. And the 
use the uh, the, the external uh, insulation and the synthetic stucco was detailed in a way that did not keep water from uh, from leaking in around the windows. Uh, and once it leaked in, it wasn't able to get out because there was not enough flashing in the right spots. So you had water every time it rained. And in Florida, it tends to rain every now and then. Water would get in through those cracks, and then it really didn't matter how much dry air you were trying to push through the building. It was not going to solve the problem uh, way out there on the exterior of the building and the sheathing. So that was a partial solution, and uh, and for several years, uh, <laughs> people like me were thinking, well, it's <laughs> it's probably just because we didn't put enough dry air, or not or dry air, not enough dry air, or or it wasn't dry enough uh, to begin with. So then another building, this was a low-rise uh, uh, kind of general commercial business uh, hotel uh, for another major chain, same issue, same type of construction, east uh, on the outside. This was a uh, three-story hotel. And then it was easy to set up a test because it had two wings. You could test one with dry air and then another wing with just whatever they'd been doing. And again, dry air was a big help. Um, uh, certainly the wing that had the dry air injection into the hall and pressurizing the building with dry air is much less problematic uh, over the course of about six months. But it didn't solve all the problems. Okay. <laughs> and again, what happened, and this is a low-rise building, uh, uh, what happened is the, the irrigation system, the, uh, the automatic watering system that would come on every day combined with the rain would shoot basically a water injection system. <laughs> uh, okay. It sprayed the water up uh, against the building, and then, you know, those, you know, those uh, uh, windows sometimes have a, a lintel or a, uh, or a sill, and you don't always necessarily know what's happening under the sill on that first floor because you can't see it easily. So it was just injecting water up in a crack that was underneath the sill, and it really didn't matter, again, how much dry air we injected into the building. It wasn't going to solve the problem. So it, it was far better than the, than the other wing, um, you know, a matter of 10 to 1 in terms of mold, mold, uh, mold volume, let's call it. But it, it really requires both the architect and the builder as well as the HVAC designer to be <laughs> aware of these issues. <laughs> so were you able to fix the uh, exterior system? Did you have to tear it off? Were you, did you repair it? Uh, they did, yeah. This uh, I was on the HVAC side of that, and uh, in both cases, and uh, and they did end up needing to do an architectural solution as well, and they did both of those things, and and it did solve the problem. But it took both of those, and it was enormously costly, as many of these things are. Lou, you know, you've talked about the past. Uh, let's talk about the present and perhaps the future. You know, green buildings are a pretty hot topic, and people are concerned about sustainability and energy efficient buildings. Do you have any concerns or worries about uh, the message that's going out with green building proponents? Do you think there are any pitfalls that are built into this? I, I don't think that there are any inherent pitfalls built into that into that idea and into the system. It's more a question of emphasis. One of the things that, that we're seeing in building practice, especially with some of the green buildings, is that it's it's, it's not quite working the, the way the uh, Green Building Council intended it, which is that <laughs> the architect uh, tells the engineer, okay, get me some green building points here, but that's after the architect has already designed the, the exterior enclosure of the building. And 
the best way to get a green building is to build a building enclosure that is, number one, uh, uh, does not transmit much in the way of, uh, of, of solar load uh, for cooling uh, and doesn't leak a lot of air. And architects at the moment are very and very fond of the idea of big glass boxes. And there's mm-hmm. no way that any, any, anything can be done on the HVAC side to improve a truly you know, thermally horrible building. The, I really like the idea of green building uh, because it, it provides maybe for the first time in, 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 in two generations an excuse for the engineer to talk to the architect uh, at the design stage. Before the, these details on the exterior, before the look and feel of the building is is set in stone, uh, that's a wonderful opportunity. But culturally, architects aren't used to asking, and engineers are not used to uh, giving advice at that early stage. The engineers are sort of culturally used to waiting around until the architect tells them what the building enclosure is, and then they say, "Oh yeah, guess what? You, you, you can't really do a very good job of this." <laughs> So, so I, the, the problems that I see are not with the idea, and not even with the process. It's just with the the, the existing culture of architects and engineers, because uh, there have been some truly wretched uh, green buildings uh, built, and those shall remain nameless on this show. All right. Well, let's follow up to that. Um, we we want to uh, keep moving in this segment, and then move on to one of the next ones. But before we do. With the trend toward more energy-efficient equipment, which is a part of the green building movement, what problems do you see resulting from using more energy-efficient equipment, and and how can using more energy-efficient equipment possibly be a bad thing? Well, I I don't think it can be a bad thing, as long as it doesn't uh, occupy your mind too very much. And one of the difficulties that we see with uh, with again, with cultural practices, especially of architects and engineers, is that one is used to thinking about uh, energy efficiency as an equipment issue, and that if you go ahead and put an efficient unit in there, uh, then you're in good shape, and that's really not the case. Uh, The biggest problems that we see in energy use in buildings has to do with the system effects. Once you put the the energy efficient equipment in, uh, is is all the ductwork tight? Are you going to leak all that efficiently generated air into the building envelope and out, in, out into the open? Um, are you going to uh, are you going to try and and use energy efficient equipment to cover up a truly terrible building enclosure? Uh, are you going to focus on energy uh, uh, efficient equipment and then not bother to have the building commissioned so that it actually operates the way the designer intends it and the way the owner intends? So. Uh, Energy-efficient equipment is certainly not a bad thing. It's just that it can become an extraordinarily bad thing if that's what people focus on. And I think that one of the reasons that people focus on that is that there are people that sell energy-efficient equipment, and there aren't so many people that sell um, uh, better building enclosures and sell uh, better attention to commissioning and better attention to understanding what the system was really intended to do and selling the services or tweaking that so that it really works. So... I don't think that it's a bad thing in itself. It's just, uh, again, if you if you think that's what is going to solve <laughs> solve the energy crisis, you're we're very very sadly mistaken about that because it's a tiny part of the problem. <laughs> so it, it comes back to making sure that people work together. I, I know we had talked earlier about making sure that the ducts don't leak, but also where the ducts connect to all the different components in the system and 
sometimes it's tough to tell whose responsibility that is. That's exactly right, and, and that's a really good example. Uh, the people at the Florida Solar Energy Center, uh, Jim Cummings and, and Chuck Withers and, and that group, uh, and also uh, Craig Ray at the Lawrence Berkeley uh, Labor- National Laboratory out in California, and uh, NYSERDA in New York, the uh, New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, have all shown that there is a very big cost of leaky ductwork. Uh, it's on the order of 20 to 40 percent of the annual heating and cooling energy that's essentially lost by having ductwork that leaks. Now, where, where the ductwork, not so much the ductwork itself, and people get focused on that again, it's where the ducts connect to air handlers. It's that seam right there. It's the seam where ductwork connects to variable air volume boxes, uh, mixing boxes, uh, also uh, where it connects to heating and cooling coils. And no one really pays a great deal of attention to the air tightness of any of those devices. So the entire air distribution system leaks, and it costs us an enormous amount of energy. Uh, I haven't yet heard a uh, politician talk about this, but uh, they really should, because uh, if one were to establish some responsibility for making sure that the, that the entire system is airtight, uh, what you do is you generate jobs. You generate jobs for people that really understand how to accomplish that. And those are jobs, by the way, that are very difficult to outsource to uh, uh, to, to other countries. There you Speaking go. Speaking of job generation, <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm concerned about generating jobs in the water damage field, and you've been working in this field for a long time and have, you know, just an immense amount of knowledge. There appears to be some disagreement within the industry about what type of dehumidification method. Uh, should be used for drying buildings. And, you know, without picking sides, if you could just give us some objective information, uh, you know, both advantage and limitations of using three technologies that are commonly utilized. One would be refrigerant or low-grain refrigerant. Another one would be desiccant. And another one would be heat. Sure. Um, that's... Uh... It's a, it's a frothy time in the, in the water damage industry right yes, now. Yes, sir. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, friendly and not very friendly uh, competition going on between the different technologies. Uh, and there has been for years. And the addition of heat to that equation beyond the low-grain refrigerants and the, and the desiccants has really added a lot of spice to the mix, a lot of heat to the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, no the uh, uh, looking at it objectively, I think that an awful lot of the the arguments uh, really have their basis in in commercial practice. Uh, a lot of these you know, technologies, yeah, we, we're always looking in in everything in the enormous complexity of indoor air quality, and enormous complexity of restoration and, and drying, trying to figure out simple ways to think about stuff. And one of the problems is that it's not a simple subject. So in trying to simplify things and keep it really simple and straightforward, uh, people tend to uh, uh, decide that they're of one religion or another and, and not think objectively about the other technologies. So you get, uh, you get this type of effect. Let me see if CJ can... And uh, get the machine that goes... Bing! <laughs> yeah, I like that. There you go, Lou. Okay. So what's... Give us a little something on each of these, just a, a couple tips on what to watch out for, the limitations and the uh, advantages. Sure. 
uh, low-grain refrigerants uh, have terrific utility across a broad range, and they are uh, arguably the most uh, uh, one of the most energy-efficient ways to take water out of the air if you're going to do that. And they're also available in a lot of small sizes, and that's, that's a big help, too. So they tend to be used maybe more widely than any of the others. The, the great advantage is their cost, uh, their relative energy efficiency, um, and, uh, and their simplicity. You just stick them in and let them go. It's not quite that simple, but it tends to be that way compared to the other technologies. So that's a, those are big advantages. The limitations that I see of low-grain refrigerants are that um, in order to get real drying power, uh, you're never going to really get there with, uh, uh, with low-grain refrigerants because they have an inherent limitation as to how low a dew point uh, they can produce in the air that they're drying. So, uh, and different people would argue different, different limits, but in fact, uh, they tend to be uh, a higher, a higher, more useful in higher humidity environments and, and not very useful in either cool or low humidity environments. So that's a limitation, and uh, people find that, uh, that they like to use many desiccants instead of a few, instead of a few, uh, or excuse me, they like to use a few desiccants rather than many low-grain refrigerants because, because the drying power of, of, of air has been dried with a desiccant. On the desiccant side, the, uh, uh, the advantages are that one specifically is you really don't have to be concerned about what your, what your inlet conditions are. They're going to dry air no matter what the condition is. Uh, and they're going to dry it very deeply. Um, that's the big advantage uh, of desiccants. They have enormous drying power. The uh, limitations are that uh, they take uh, quite a bit more energy to do that than other technologies. So some of the uh, some of the newer technologies where they they combine a hybrid of cooling and desiccants together and using the waste heat from uh, from cooling to regenerate the desiccant. That's that's one way of overcoming the limitation, but still they're going to take a lot more power and a lot more heat than, than will the low-grain refrigerants. Uh, they'll be doing more work, but they're going to take more more power on the site, so that becomes uh, sometimes becomes a limitation. Lou, you, you use this term, introduce this term, deep drying. Uh, can you give me a definition of that term? What do you mean by deep drying? You said desiccants can do deep yeah. drying. Well, what what I, I it's a moving target cliff. Uh, what what I mean by that is that if uh, if low grain refrigerants provide a grain depression, a, a moisture removal of something between uh, 10 grains per pound and 20 grains per pound, uh, or maybe 30 grains per pound, a desiccant uh, dehumidifier can can begin with that and then dry much more deeply. In other words, a greater grain depression under many circumstances. Thank you. Under most circumstances. But how deep depends on where you start, so it's not an easy. I don't have an easy bottom definition for how deep is deep. <laughs> well, no. The reason that the reason that I wanted to, to to bring it out is I just didn't want the audience to think that you know it would dry a material more deeply than another technology. Or I wasn't sure exactly what you meant, and I think that okay. you've cleared about, clarified it very very well. What about these heat systems? Heat systems are, are uh, relatively uh, uh, new, you know, maybe the last five years or so in, in the industry, and they have added another terrific tool to the, uh, uh, to, the uh, to the toolkit of people that are doing drying. Uh, heat is very, very useful for drying, as anyone who owns a clothes dryer knows. Uh, 
the more energy you put into uh, into a damp material, uh, the more active you can make the water molecules, the more likely they are to want to bounce out of that uh, out of that material, and that's very helpful. The heat, of course, doesn't remove any moisture from air. So what you need is you need outdoor air that you heat up and then supply to a building and then exhaust that now moist air. So it's not really a dehumidifier as much as, a, as, it's, a, as it's a dryer for, uh, for materials. And the air is not dried. It's just, uh, it's just heated up so that it can hold more moisture. But that's a great technology and, and I think has a great future. The uh, limitation that I see uh, with heat is that, of course, uh, it's not taking any moisture out of the air. So uh, where you have limitations of getting air from outdoors, then that, that could be an issue. The bigger issue, I think, is the over-reliance on heat. If, uh, if the only tool that you have is a hammer, all your problems look like nails. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Therefore, uh, therefore you, you tend to say, well, heat does everything. And one of the limitations of heat, and that's an important one, is that when you start mobilizing water uh, in a material, it goes in all directions. And sometimes that will go in directions where you don't want it to go. So you have to be careful about about making sure that you do pull that, that humid air out of the building and that you don't create enough energy to evenly distribute more moisture throughout other places where it's going to recondense or where it's going to dry too quickly uh, and then crack materials. So it's really more a question of craft than it is with the, with the underlying uh, science of the technology. That there's a limitation there. You know, I had an ulterior motive for asking you those previous questions. And really what the motive is, is I'm on a panel that's going to be posing questions to proponents of refrigerant, desiccant, and heat drying systems at the upcoming Restoration Industry Association meeting in California uh, at this Donnybrook. And, Lou, I know that you have an inquiring mind, and I'm looking for tough questions that I should be asking these guys. Um, that's going to be a fun thing, Cliff. <laughs> You're going to enjoy I'll take, that. I'll take, all, I'll take all the credit. I just, you know, so if you can give me some good stuff. We're getting uh, a couple I, comments from uh, from out, out in the world there, too, on this issue. I, Absolutely. I, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're going to be wearing a good solid suit of armor. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Kevlar underwear, that's good, too. Right. Um, yeah, I think uh, I suppose if if it were me and I were and I were there, which I won't be because uh, I'm otherwise committed, um, I I think an interesting question for each of those proponents would be: uh, Do you believe uh, that uh, that all of these technologies apply in all circumstances, really? And if someone says that they don't agree with that statement, then I'd ask them to explain why one other particular technology does not apply in one other particular circumstance. So if they really believe that, that theirs is the true religion and that all right. others are idols and must be slaughtered, uh, I think it would be very useful to find out uh, why, what circumstances they believe the other technologies do not apply in and why they believe that from their experience, not from their theory. Right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you, Lou. We will uh, be following up. Cliff will be at the uh, RIA. Uh, Donnybrook, and we will update you on IAQ Radio after after the Donnybrook is over, well, Zach, I'm sure. Zach will be out there, too, representing uh, okay. IAQ Radio. Okay, good. IAQ right. Radio, we'll be, we'll, we'll be there. All right, let's move on. Uh, what uh, 
there was another issue I wanted to talk about with respect to uh, water damage. And uh, would it be accurate to say that you have concerns about the lack of objective data about what is considered dry or what is an appropriate moisture content for various construction materials? Um, yes, that, that, that's, that's very accurate. Um, it's not that I don't think that we're doing a much better job in the industry than we did maybe uh, uh, 20 years ago and 10 years ago and five years ago, because I do think that there are improvements all the time. But I think that, um, you know, from the insurance industry's perspective and from the, uh, from the building owner's perspective, we have some real limitations about our current practices, about uh, what we what we decide is a building that has a risk of the problems and what we decide is not a building with the problems. Right now, if we look at the uh, sort of general practice in the industry, the idea is that you look at a building that's been damaged with water, you uh, take out what doesn't make sense to replace, you uh, uh, perhaps apply antimicrobials where that, make, where that makes sense to extend, uh, deal with the problems in many ways. Uh, and then, uh, and then you go about figuring out of oh, the stuff that's still wet, how wet it is, and where that is, and therefore what you should be doing to dry it, and how dry it should be at the end. And right now, the standard is uh, well, we just find a, an area that is unaffected. Uh, we measure that moisture content, and then that's the basis for our drying target. Well, that's not a really good way to do it because if you look at a building, <laughs> there are an infinite number of places that you can take that measurement, an infinite number. So where is that measurement taken exactly, and why do you think it's unaffected, number one? Uh, number two, uh, is it unaffected to the point where it's not going to have a problem anyway? For instance, if you have uh, a hurricane in Florida uh, and you're saturating a whole lot of buildings that have been teetering on the brink of, uh, of, a, of a moisture problem to begin with, uh, just bringing them back all the way to that brink is not doing anybody any favors. So I think we do need more objective criteria about what moisture content uh, ought to be for different materials and exactly where. And when I say exactly, I mean within inches where, where it should be measured and how often. Uh, and, uh, and we don't have that right now. We don't have objective data for figuring out what those moisture contents should be. For example, uh, we do have probably... Most people have a rough idea of what moisture content ought to be for, for provided we know how to measure that, which is another question. But let's say <laughs> number. But but then how about the concrete that uh, that it's glued to or that it's nailed to? Is there an objective uh, standard for that? Uh, there is not. Uh, not even the gypsum people themselves have any standard for what the moisture content needs to be of of concrete or masonry that the gypsum board is, is attached to. They don't have that standard. But we need one. Right. <laughs> <Because> kind of <laughs> and so I, I think we have uh, a long way to go bef before we can reliably uh, uh, drive buildings at the lowest possible cost or the highest possible reliability. <laughs> well, that, that kind of leads us into our next category, which is moisture measurement and some of the tools of the trade. So let's talk a little bit about moisture measurement and um, maybe we can start with some of the advantages and limitations of, for instance, uh, penetrating moisture meters. Sure. Um, well, if we look at the, the range of moisture measurement techniques that are currently economically practical, they're really effectively uh, uh, two. Uh, 
One is the pin-type moisture meter, or some people call the penetrating moisture meter, or the resistance-based moisture meter, or impedance-based. That's that's basically uh, uh, a very uh, it's a very inexpensive technology, uh, and it tends to be on the plus side. It tends to be not only inexpensive, uh, it also tends to be more repeatable. So that if two people are using the same instrument, uh, you plug it into the wall, you you, you drill those needles into the wall in the same location, you're very likely to get the same. Uh, because of those two factors, uh, reliability or repeatability, more accurately, repeatability and low cost, uh, and also the variety of, of things that you can measure with that because of the different attachments, the different types of probes that you can attach, that tends to be the, uh, the, the standard uh, that the most rely on. Limitations of that technology are that, of course, it's entirely dependent on what the electrical characteristics of the material are. Those two points. That's all you really know. You don't know what the moisture content is an inch and a half away. Hmm. You have no clue what that is. So that's a big limitation uh, of that technology, and people aren't necessarily able to understand that. The other thing that people don't really uh, often realize about those is that is that the, the measurement readings that you get are typically uh, calibrated for, uh, for, for uh, Douglas fir. Uh, so it's a soft wood. And when you see moisture readings of uh, you know, uh, 17, 18% and you're using that in a piece of gypsum, uh, that's not what the moisture content is with gypsum by any means. Uh, right, right. <laughs> it might be the wood moisture equivalent, uh, but uh, the soft wood moisture equivalent, but it's not that. So there's a lot of confusion about what those readings mean uh, in, in the world. Well, can, so you, are, uh, can you comment on the, the types of uh, penetrating pin-type moisture meters that have different um, scales for different types of materials? Uh, basically what I've seen is you know either wood, uh, gypsum, sheetrock, or other. Yeah, what, what happens is that you have a scale which is more or less good for uh, Douglas fir or, or white pine, depends on the, on the manufacturer. So that's good. And then you have other scales in some of these meters. Not all of them have the other scales, but, uh, but many of them do. And then those are other, like a reference scale. And that's just either 0 to 100 or 0 to 200, depending on the manufacturer. Uh, and that's just purely relative numbers. Uh, a lot wetter, a lot drier. And the difficulty with those other scales are two. First is you're never quite sure which, which scale you're supposed to be reading for a particular material. Uh, and number two, the numbers between the manufacturers have very different meanings. So if you have, for example, a reading of 99 uh, on one meter, that might be half of its scale whereas the reading of, uh, uh, of 99 on the other meter might be at the absolute end of its relative scale. Hmm. So there are big problems there. The biggest problem, though, I would say about the relative scales and the other, the, the other scales in the meters is that it's never quite clear what, what is being reported. So that's a reporting problem. Say, yep, moisture content of this, of this gypsum board was 60%. Well, no, it wasn't 60%. It was 60%. 60 on a relative scale. It was 60-something, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so later on, when you're trying to figure out uh, what went wrong, uh, these aren't very helpful readings. <laughs> uh, okay. I, 
I'd say that the, the biggest problem that we have in meter technology, and then we could talk about other types of meters, is that one needs to really document the exact location of the measurement. That's really critical. Okay. So I think I think photographic evidence is much is, is photographic recording is, is is very much called for and and, uh, and neglected uh, in the water damage industry. Yeah, a, a photo of where exactly where those readings were taken on what day, what time. <laughs> well, what about uh, the the non-penetrating type of meters? Can you comment on those? Sure. Uh, non-penetrating meters are uh, have a terrific advantage over the others in that it's easy to uh, to quickly scan a wall. In other words, you can you can just clump that meter along the wall, just placing it on the contacting the wall every few inches or every few feet and you can get a rather quick idea about where where the really big problems are because uh, because you don't have to be drilling holes or punching holes in the wall to, to do that and so that's very convenient um, the limitations are many as well uh, they tend to be very much more operator dependent uh, if you were if you and I were to take the exact same instrument to the exact same location we're going to get different readings because we're holding the instrument in a physically different way. Either more or less pressure or a different angle, everything affects the readings of those meters uh, because they're basically looking at the changes in the electrical field around the meter. And your hand uh, and your hand pressure can influence that field. So they're not as repeatable as the, um, uh, as the uh, pen-type meters. Uh, and they're also quite a bit more expensive. On the, they're on the order of, uh, you know, Four hundred to four hundred dollars and on up, as opposed to you know fifty or sixty dollars all the way to a thousand dollars for pin type meters, depending on what you're using. So they're more expensive, they are less repeatable, but they are much more useful for getting a, a, a quicker understanding of, of what the of what the picture uh, content might be without having to drill holes. Uh, they suffer from. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, I was going to admit to something that was embarrassing. We were drawing a building down in Florida after Hurricane Andrew, and I was having tremendous trouble drawing this bathroom. We just couldn't get it dry. And I kept getting off-the-scale readings with my non-penetrating meter, and it turned out that there was a layer of wall covering underneath the layer. So there was, a, there was a, a lower layer, an under layer, and it was actually metal foil wall covering there you go <laughs> and it just you know it was off the scale in terms of reading and until i figured that out you know i ended up having to adjust my bill and removing the drying equipment that i had in there for a couple of days but in any painful way, yeah. painful painful <laughs> no i i got a couple quick questions here what about when you say photographic are you referring to digital or infrared and i, I believe you were referring to digital photographs to verify the moisture content Yes, and I and I am a firm believer in uh, in using more digital, you know, visual photographs to, to document where it is that you're taking the readings. Not to say anything uh, in any way negative about infrared, because that's a technology that's really revolutionized the, the, the practice of water damage for sure. But uh, I'm just talking about you know where physically were the moisture content readings taken. Um, I've seen some uh, some reports where the uh, where the infrared uh, image. Uh, we can talk about that if you like, but the infrared image is placed along with the visual image of where the moisture content readings were, were taken. And then that is very nice because it shows the person who's reading the report that indeed 
that probably is the area, looking at the infrared, that probably is the area that's probably wettest. And then you can see, yes, I took the moisture reading there. That is the wettest. Six inches above, it's drier. We took the reading there, it's drier. So I, I think that's a fabulous combination. That's sort of the, the, uh, the real uh, Lexus of the industry right now. I don't, not very many people are taking the time to do that because <laughs> most insurance companies, I don't think, have any understanding of the value of that. <laughs> I think I've got one one quick question that we got text in from a listener, and then we're going to move on to IR stuff. Uh, what about using stainless steel screws? This probably refers back to using resistance or an impedance-type meter, where you would take stainless steel screws drilled into the bottom plate and then using them to measure the moisture. Can you comment on that? Great idea. Uh, terrific idea. I, th I think everybody ought to, ought to do that sort of thing. The, the difficulty, again, though, is that uh, you have to be careful that, that you're really getting the, uh, the worst case and that that worst case stays the worst case because all you know, then, is the resistance between those two stainless steel screws. So that, I think it's a terrific uh, step in the right direction for deep drying, especially. That's a great way. You can just go back, touch, the, touch those two screws, and bingo, you, you know what's happened on each day. It's great. But you don't know what's happening two inches to the right, the left, up or down. That's the only hesitation that I would have about about that. Is just make sure you don't rely on that entirely. All right, let, let, let's move on to thermal imaging, Joe. What do you think? Absolutely. Okay, J uh, Lou, can you just tell us just quickly how does thermal in, in imaging work? Sure. Um, a lot of different technologies in, uh, in infrared imaging, but the one that's in most general use today in, in water damage is uh, what people might call sh the shorthand thermal imaging as opposed to other types of imaging. And that looks at wavelengths that carry an awful lot of the heat at terrestrial temperatures. So what you're looking at, if you're looking through a thermal camera, is you're looking at the heat the emissions and the reflections from a surface. You're not looking into the wall. You're not looking on the other side of the wall. You're just looking at the surface and you're seeing you're seeing a modification of how much thermal energy, how much heat is coming off of that surface. And that's great because uh, things in, in water damage situations, uh, uh, moist materials in almost all cases are colder, cooler, not by, not, not by much, just a degree or two, but they are cooler than the, than the surrounding area because moisture is evaporating and it's taking the heat out of those, a little bit of heat from those materials. So they're really great for, for showing, uh, for, for showing materials that are drying in a water damage situation, and you can get a great view of that quickly. But that's what it's doing, is it's looking at emissions and reflections. Lou, if I don't have a, uh, a camera, can I just use a, a laser thermometer to get a, a similar type of reading, or is there a, a significant difference? Oh, absolutely. You, you could use that, but it's a little bit like using a toothbrush to uh, scrub the Empire State Building. There you uh, go. Uh, it's uh, absolutely you can you can take successive readings uh, every few inches and see what the surface temperature is, and write that down, and then write that down on a sheet of paper, and then figure out some way to plot that or something and get an idea. But you, I don't think most people would be able to afford the time and the energy versus to be able to do that. Um, it's just extraordinarily clumsy to do it that way. So what? But what I'm basically doing is taking many of those images basically all on one photograph 
Yeah, well, what you're doing is you're combining all those all those quantified readings and you're creating an image out of that. And then based on the, on the patterns that you see in the image, it's just very much easier to, to see where the suspect areas are that you go in and use the meter just to quantify. So it's it's just it's anywhere from from 19,000 to 68,000 of those measurements in one in one picture converted to a grayscale. So it so it looks like you can. Uh, the thermal image is a picture. It shows you the, the temperatures of all those different things, but it doesn't show you numbers. It shows you their, their grayscale value. It's just a fabulous way to find moisture. So from 19,000 to 68,000, did I hear you say? That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Cliff? You know, you mentioned gray images, uh, ver- grayscale versus uh, full color. You know, those color infrared thermography images are just so aesthetically pleasing, you know, to see all the colors and so on and so forth. And I'm just wondering, do grayscale images actually have an advantage over a color image? I, I think it depends on, on what the use is. Uh, I I really only know of one or two people that like using uh, the false color images when they're doing uh, uh, section of the building. It's uh, it's very con- the colors become very confusing. The grayscale is much easier to uh, uh, to really find patterns that are significant. Uh, when you're doing the inspection, right? doing the inspection, all that color data is very confusing because there's really no significance to the exact temperature differences that you're seeing <laughs> in, in a building inspection where you're looking for water. It doesn't matter whether it's you know two degrees one way or the other. What you're looking for is the pattern. And when you add false color to that, when you take the grayscale image and you color that with instead of grayscale, you color it with colors, it gets very confusing visually. But I'll tell you, um, what I found is that when you are printing reports, the grayscale does not do as good a job of communicating the problem as the colors do. Um, and it's really a function of the printers that we have. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, when, you, when you print out a grayscale image, unless you have a really, and even if you have a really fabulous printer, it doesn't communicate to other people the, uh, the nature of the problem, whereas the color sometimes Yes, it grossly exaggerates the problem, but you need that to be able to communicate that in print. Um, it's very confusing when you're doing it, but if, if you're looking at a printed piece of paper months later, sometimes the color can be much more informative. It can also be used to terrify people, and that's one of the problems with that, but you know, there are charlatans everywhere. <laughs> Lou, can you comment on some embarrassing mistakes that you know about which have been caused by thermographers? Um, I, I, I don't know about embarrassing. Uh, certainly, I've had plenty of uh, embarrassments that I try and uh, catch before I tell any of anybody about them. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I think that uh, the biggest thing that that, that happens indoors, it, we, we, I divide it into two categories. If you're looking for water damage problems in a in a, in a, in an acute situation, it's, it's a disaster drying. That's easier. Whereas if you're looking to use a thermal camera in a forensic investigation, a chronic problem, that's incredibly difficult. So problem number one is if people think that because they they are very competent in using water damage that they can then do uh, more complex forensic investigations just as easily, they're going to be disappointed and they're going to likely be embarrassed by what happens uh, because those situations are more complex. Specifically, um, you end up with other reasons for there being cold cold surfaces, uh, and you also end up having more problems with the, with the issue of reflections from the surfaces, because you're looking at all sorts of different things, not just drying gypsum board. And 
so that the embarrassment there is thinking that from one experience you're already ready to, to do the forensic investigations, and that that's the biggest problem that I see. But uh, that's not to say that you can't use the camera and that more experience will, will give you that. It absolutely will, but you just have to be more careful when it's not a, a true, you know, gosh, there's water all over the floor kind of situation. You know, I had just finished teaching a mold class uh, earlier this week, and one of the students said that he'd seen a presentation that you had done about thermography and that uh, there apparently you showed this slide and there is this apparently wet or cold area on the side of a building and uh, everyone thinks it's water and then you know you either explained or showed subsequent slides and explained that you know it was the sun and shading that it actually caused this. Can you just elaborate on that because I think it's an important point for people using these cameras on the exterior buildings. It's a really key point, uh, Cliff, and and, uh, and when you go not just from the inside, but now you're going to the outside of a building, you're really in the thermal jungle because there's all sorts of reasons for things to be hot or cold that have nothing to do with water. Uh, the example I think that the, that that you're referencing was um, was a was an Eves building uh, in the coast of Maine, uh, and. Uh, if you look closely at the wall, you can see all sorts of blotchy dark areas, many of which uh, were certainly moisture because you could meter the, you could use a penetrating meter on the eaves and you could tell, yeah, definitely this is moisture. But there are other dark blotchy areas that, that really uh, wouldn't meter out as being a moisture problem because they were really just shadows that the sun was casting uh, from a tree, or in that case, I think it was probably suspected image that that person had in mind was a was a lighting fixture that shaded part of the wall. So if you just look at the wall, it looked like there was this big blotch that looked like a moisture problem, when in fact uh, it was just slightly cooler temperature because you're seeing a, shade, a shaded area of uh, shaded by light lighting fixture in the way of the sun. Like, and you mentioned this, uh, Lou, but I guess we, we really should emphasize that you still have to, you know, the use of these cameras doesn't rule out the use of the moisture meters that uh, you've still got to follow up and verify with them? The best use of a, of a thermal camera is to find out where you should be using meters. That's the big, that's the best use for, for a thermal camera. That's not trivial. I mean, that's really a big question as to where you should be using the meters. To my point earlier about you don't know from one inch to the next inch whether you're going to have a different moisture content, the, me, the, uh, the thermal cameras really help you decide that part of the wall is the wettest part, so let's meter that more carefully than we meter the other infinite number of places that we could be using the meter. It allows you to focus your attention. <laughs> could you just summarize the point again? Yeah, the, uh, the the best use of the best use of thermal cameras is to figure out where you should be using your meters. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Lou. That was an important. That was an important. Everybody point. Stand, standing up, staring on that one. Huh? <laughs> we just there, had to get your timing right. Had to get it right. It's not easy here, but CJ was on the ball. Lou, okay. real quick before we uh, run out of time completely here, we can go over just a little bit. But uh, new trends, new things. What what type of research do you see coming around the corner, uh, or even you know years out from here? Well, I, I would hope that the, the next research that the, 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 the 
industry does and, and that all the related industries related to water damage does is, uh, is this issue of what should the moisture content be in the real world. We know what it should be in the laboratory. We also know that the laboratory does not apply to the real world because things are drying and they're wetting at different rates in the real world than they do in the laboratory. So I think that I think that what we really need, and I certainly hope that we'll see this in the future, is field investigations combined with uh, an understanding of what really leads to insurance losses and, and preventing insurance losses. So I would hope that the insurance industry would say, yes, it is important to us to understand when failures are going to reoccur, and therefore we're going to do the research or support the research that, that, would, uh, that would look at the field investigations as to where problems occurred and what those moisture contents were. Understand them more carefully. Lou, were there any questions that you were hoping that we would ask you and we didn't? Anything no, you, I think you, anything you like you to add? All, you hit all the high spots, I think. Okay. <laughs> all, all, all my favorite topics that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, those are, give me, I let, mean, me, let me give one more shot, Lou. How many years is the X-ray uh, technology you were working on down the road? <laughs> X-ray and radar? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, that's another long story, but to make a very long story short, uh, radar, I think, does have a great potential for, for helping us find water in three dimensions uh, in buildings. And I don't think that it's more than 10 or $15 million away and maybe 10 or 15 years away from a product. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you never know. That uh, 10 or $15 million, so but, maybe... uh, proof, proof of Proof of principle has been well established, but uh, but it will take uh, someone with very deep pockets and a very uh, and very long view before that can be reduced to something which people can afford and use. Uh, and one of the difficulties I would say is that the thermal cameras have been so successful visually that people are definitely going to want to see moisture images in three dimensions, and there's where the problem is. <laughs> uh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> If you wanted to bring an x-ray machine up to the side of a wall and make sure the, the place was evacuated uh, and blasted with x-ray imaging and uh, take three weeks for each two-foot section, you could get that right now. But <laughs> I don't think people would want to pay for it. And the same thing with radar, uh, but we're not, we're not at a handheld, oh, gosh, there, I can see it now. It's three inches in sort of camera. <laughs> well, it's still down the road, and it's always great to uh, get some insight from you on those types of things. Before we go, how can listeners contact you if they're interested in uh, your services or talking to you a little more, Lou? They're very welcome to call anytime. I have a simple policy about that, which is that if it's in my head and I can do it on the phone, it's free. <laughs> I saw that on your website, actually. I appreciate that. If someone says, well, would you just kind of write something up and uh, kind of send me an email on that, that's going to cost somebody something because it takes me a tremendous amount of time to write anything. Absolutely. But they can call, uh, which is uh, here in Portsmouth, is area code 603-431-0635. And, uh, and, of course, the website is there, and that's uh, www.masongrant.com. It's M-A-S-O-N. G R A N T dot com. And again, you're very welcome to download any of the, the information that I've got there from, from past projects. And, and I love to talk to people. <laughs> well, Lou, we really appreciate you talking to us. And uh, we're going to wrap it up here. But uh, first, I, I just want to say thanks again for joining us. Um, I also want to thank uh, the cyber jockey, CJ, here for helping us out. Next week, our technical director, Dietrich Wow, will be back. I think he's got his schedule fixed for uh, 
what is it, tennis now is the time of year. And uh, certainly I want to thank Cliff, uh, my co-host, Cliff Lotnick here for helping out with another excellent episode of IAQ Radio. But most importantly, thanks to all of you listeners out there. It looks like we've had uh, a nice show. We appreciate everybody joining us. And uh, our growing group of loyal listeners is what keeps us coming back. Please come back next Friday at noon and join us for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 